Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. How y'all doing? I'm I'm doing good. Uh, not unlike Captain Sheridan with his speech, I managed to get my summary for points of departure done just in time. <laughs> and how you doing, Jude? You ready to start season two? I'm excited about season two. Uh, I am a big fan of season two, so I'm looking forward to uh, getting into it. All right. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, as, as you may have inferred, uh, tonight we are starting our coverage of Babylon 5 season two, uh, which is titled The Coming of Shadows. Dun, dun, dun. Ominous. So tonight we are going to be talking about the first two episodes, which are Points of Departure and Revelations. Um, before we get started, uh, I mean, there's obviously the big roster change between seasons here, which is Michael O'Hare departing the show um, for reasons I believe we've dis- we've already discussed on the show. As a refresher, um, at the time it was uh, st- simply stated that he was moving on to other opportunities. Uh, but it was revealed after his death that he was dealing with fairly severe mental health problems, um, and he simply could not handle uh, being on a TV show. So he left the show and and to try and get healthy. And uh, JMS brought him in periodically for some work uh, on B five. But uh, B five was really kind of one of the last things he did. And replacing him, we have Bruce Boxlitner. Bruce Boxenlickner, I could not pronounce his name for a moment there. Um, who who, who uh, people may recognize from Tron. Yeah. Or a TV show that I had never heard of. Which is Scarecrow Mrs. King? Yes. I knew the name of it. I had no idea what it's about, so I looked it up earlier today. Have you have you seen what this is about? No, I know nothing about it other than the title. He, he also plays in... Uh, there's a there's either a Twilight Zone or Outer Limits episode that's the redo of the Gremlin on the Wing episode that Shatner was in, oh, and God. he and Box Lutner plays the dude seeing the Gremlin, which is wild. I was really hoping you were going to say he plays the Gremlin, which would have been <laughs> a wild twist. So I love the fact that it's like on his Wikipedia page, like in the like opening paragraph, he's like he's also known for his dual. Dual roles: the characters Alan Bradley and Tron in the in the 1982 picture Tron, a role which he reprised in the 2003 video game Tron 2.0, the 2006 Square Enix Disney game crossover game Kingdom Hearts 2. I love how that can be in someone's main thing of just like Wolf. yes, this person was in Kingdom Hearts 2. Scarecrow and Mrs. King was about a divorced housewife, Amanda King, and top-level agency operative Lee Stetson, who begin an unusual partnership and eventual romance after encountering one another in a train station. What the hell? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Looking at this Wikipedia page, eventually they get married and have to keep their marriage secret from their employers, friends, and families. Wow. Uh, uh, so, So, Anakin and Padme, anyone? Yeah, I, yeah, can you imagine that people just, like, decided that, like, this is the stuff I would normally have to, get, like, find very specific fanfic for, but people just used to make television shows out of this shit? Yeah. That's impressive. It's wild. Anyway. Yeah, so so we're setting off our season with Season 2, Episode 1, Points of Departure, written by JMS and directed by Janet Greek. Our episode starts with a couple of new faces. Captain John Sheridan of the Agamemnon receives a call from General Haig of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. 
Sheridan is briefed on ongoing situation. The Minbari warship Trigadi has been sighted recently on a path to Babylon 5. Furthermore, the Trigadi is a renegade ship that broke contact from Minbar at the end of the war. Sheridan is given orders to cooperate with another Minbari warship to deal with the situation, uh, despite his last interaction with such a ship ending in him destroying it. He's also given orders for just, just one more thing. And with that little cliffhanger, we return to B5, as Ivanova, in a log format, summarizes the current state of affairs. Status report. Lieutenant Commander Susan Ivanova recording. It is now eight days since the death of Earth Alliance President Luis Santiago, and five days since Commander Sinclair was recalled to Earth without explanation. And the whole place has gone straight to hell. Garibaldi is still in critical condition and unconscious in med lab. Sinclair has been called back to Earth indefinitely. Delenn is in a cocoon, and Jakar is missing. Ivanova also receives a call from Haig, who informs her that Sinclair will not be returning to the station, that he's been permanently reassigned as the Earth ambassador to Mimbar, and that Sheridan will be replacing him as commander of the station. Lanier also gets the information about the Turgati uh, in person from another Mimbari named Hedrun, who is displeased that Delenn took prophecy into her own hands and is in a cocoon. Lanier is given his orders. If Dragati appears, he is to go to the humans and tell them the truth. Meanwhile, another new and much shadier looking Mimbari arrives at the station and asks for information from the computer, specifically the location of the ambassadorial quarters. Ivanova meets Sheridan upon his arrival and briefs him on the current situation as he officially takes command. We learn that the two have served together before, and they speculate that the Mimbari won't be happy to learn that he is in command of the station, given his history with them. The two part ways, and Sheridan intends to join Ivanova at CNC once he's had a real honest-to-God shower in order to give his good luck speech. Elsewhere, our two Mimbari newcomers collide. Hedrin recognizes the shadier dude as Kalein and chases after him. Kalein threatens him with wolverine claws, uh, <laughs> claiming that the Grey Council mim- betrayed the Mimbari. Uh, we get some more dirt on the Grey Council, too. Their protests against Sheridan's appointment were ignored by EarthGov, and Kalein's faction apparently still has supporters among the Council. And Kalein is concerned that Sinclair's ambassadorship on Mimbar is not the whole story. Uh, he releases Hedron and warns him to leave the station. Back in CNC, Sheridan starts his speech and is promptly interrupted by a call from security, saying that a Mimbari is demanding to speak to him. He and Ivanova head out to take care of the matter, uh, while we cut to Kalein in the ambassadorial section, where he attacks the security officer and steals his weapon. It turns out that Hedron is the Mimbari who wanted to speak to Sheridan. He informs the two that Kalein is on the station and explains that Kalein was second in command of the Trigadi. We get more detail on the Trigadi itself as well. Its commander committed suicide rather than surrender at the end of the war. Then the ship vanished after Kalein took command. The ship has been seen several times since then, but has never attacked. After Hedrin leaves, we also get more context on Sheridan's past with the Mimbari. He destroyed their flagship, the Black Star, by mining the asteroid field between Jupiter and Mars. The Earth ships were unable to uh, lock onto Mimbari ships with their tracking technology, but mines don't have to track anything to explode. The Mimbari generally consider this to be a dick move (laughs) and deeply dishonorable, but uh, Sheridan has been lauded by by Earth for taking down the warship. Sheridan and Ivanova head to Delenn's quarters, fearing that Kalein may target her. And they indeed find Kalein pointing a gun at Lanier and apprehend him. During Kalein's interrogation, he's unsurprisingly very stubborn. Sheridan concludes that he didn't intend to kill either Delenn or Lanier, but instead has other plans. He asks where Kalein's ship is, but the Mimbari refuses to answer. After leaving the interrogation, Lanier catches up to Sheridan and Ivanova and requests a meeting. We learn that at the Battle of the Line, Delenn, as part of the council, decided to bring a human onto the ship for interrogation. And it happened to be Sinclair. 
as part of their examination of Sinclair, the Mimbari learned that Mimbari souls are being reborn in the human population, and thus the Grey Council ordered the surrender of their fleet to avoid harming Mimbari souls. But also, this information was kept secret from the Mimbari people as a whole due to the impact it would have on their society. The meeting is interrupted by a call from CNC. A Mimbari cruiser is coming through the jump gate. Sheridan activates the defense grid and puts the fighter squadrons on standby. While Kalein commits suicide in a cell uh, using a stash of poison hidden in a hollow tooth. The Trugati demands that Kalein be returned to them and launches fighters, claiming that the war has already begun. All that remains now is honor and death. With that line, Sheridan starts to figure out what's going on. The Trigadi are trying to start a war, but have to provoke Earth into making the first move. He orders the B-5 fighters to stand by and not attack, and sends a tight beam laser comm through the jump gate. Tensions mount as the Trigadi's fighters approach the B-5 Star Furies, and simply zip past them without, uh, without engaging. The jump gate opens and another Mambari warship comes through. Not reinforcements for the Dragati, as Ivanova fears, but reinforcements for Babylon 5. The new ship orders the Dragati to surrender, but the Dragati attempts to jump out of the system. The other ship disables the Dragati's drive, but it refuses to be boarded, instead blowing its fusion reactors. The captain of the other Mimbari warship is still pissed at Sheridan, though, for the situation, since the crew of the Trigadi were heroes to many of the Mimbari, and apparently this is all Sheridan's fault somehow. Wrapping up, we have some conversations between the crew. Sheridan fears that coming to B5 was irresponsible, as he may have drawn the Trigadi there and put the station into danger. But Ivanova tells him to give himself the benefit of the doubt. Lanier attends to Delenn and says he regrets he couldn't tell the humans about the prophesied return of the great enemy and the war that is to come. And the chrysalis begins to crack once he leaves. Sheridan is supposed to meet Ivanova, Franklin, and the Starfury pilot and um, recurring character Keffer for drinks, but ends up running late since he has to finish his speech just ahead of the deadline. Do we really have to refer to Keffer by Dave? He, he, he honestly, okay. Obligatory eye candy Keffer? He's not even like, we, we've gone over this, I think, before. With his not sexy like- ascot? All right, we're going to refer to Keffer as sexy ascot from now on. How there dare you? How dare you when, 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 when Fred Jones is right there? Yeah, there's there's a lot going on in this episode. This is a bananas. This is an episode that could not exist in any other TV show. It's like a second pilot. Yeah, and also like an episode from the middle of a season. There's nothing like season openery about it. It's so weirdly monster of the week. Like, yeah. That that you could you're right that it's a middle of the season episode despite like season 1 ended with such a bang and now it's like okay so we have just like a random ass warship. We get there's also honestly like 60% of the airtime is fucking exposition. Yeah, it feels like a West Wing episode almost. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so JMS JMS like I want to say bragged about having like trap doors for all the characters mm-hmm. that he's like oh yeah i can easily I, I can easily rewrite out any character on the show if necessary like and replace them if necessary like because i know how television works and you know actors are going to get replaced i don't think he was really prepared for the main character of his show leaving even with a like a summer yeah. like a summer breaks notice um, because I like he knew he knew he knew O'Hare wasn't coming back. I was young enough when the show came out that I didn't really know any of the kind of news around it, around it, other than just seeing season two and seeing the change in commanders. But I like up until the point where you said that it had happened due to O'Hare needing to leave the show for health reasons. I had always thought that it was fucking planned that like this episode mm. is really awkward, but given given some of the stuff that happens later and the way that the show ultimately goes, I always thought that this was the plan all along to have a swap in commanders. Yeah, no, uh, not the case. Um, 
just wild. Yeah, is correct. Uh, JMS famously said that has said that uh, he wrote trapdoors for every character, uh, and he used some of them, n number of them, more than one, less than all of them, and the big one though is is Sinclair. But yeah, I think I would have to go back and watch the video. But the sense I got was that it was not entirely like his departure was not entirely like graceful at the end there. So I, I don't get the imp- I didn't get the impression JMS. I got the impression he had to kind of put together that pivot into Sheridan quickly. So I think that's what accounts yeah. for the rockiness of that episode. I think what you have to do in that situation of the season opener then is. I mean, you've gotta you've gotta sell your new lead of the show because I mean Bruce Boxleitner is I mean I would say at least like a reasonably well known talent and I think this episode like this episode is here to introduce Sheridan by tossing him into a crisis that he is possibly both very well suited for and very ill suited to handle. Yeah, yeah. We get some stuff about like his character very early on and very intensely, like when Sheridan and Ivanova are walking from customs, Sheridan talks about how he hasn't had oranges in two years. And that was the part he was excited about on the flight over. And he just starts talking about the garden and how excited he is to have real food again. And there is an energy in him that is immediate and apparent yeah. And it's a very different one from Sinclair, where there's a little bit more of a a stoicism to Sinclair. Mm-hmm. Whereas Sheridan is just like ebullient and very ready to get into things. And, and that and that first yeah. it's funny because that first scene with him sets him up to be such a hard ass. Right? Yes. Like, you know, the the last time I encountered a Mimbari war cruiser, I <laughs> blew it right out of the sky. It's so funny because it just turns out he's just a fucking nerd. I know, yeah. he's such a dork. Yeah, he, he is. really is. Uh, like, I, he comes to the station, he's like, like, plums, 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 but the black ones, not the red ones, plums, plums, plums. Yeah. And with that energy, he's also got like this grace to him. Where, you know, you get to hear his speech, which he's like, God, he's so fucking dorky. He's got the fucking speech that he has to give within the first 24 hours. And it's, and it's great for, like, that first part where he's talking about meeting the Dalai Lama. And, like, you you learn that he's like, oh, he's an on, he's a diplomatic envoy's son. Um, which is, like, it's different, but it's also, like, it's it's the same thing where it's a a non-standard, non-militaristic background for your commander in contrast to sinclair who comes from a family of pilots yeah i mean sinclair has like the jesuit background which is like yeah yeah definitely like jesuits have their very specific way of looking at the world but it's like but this diplomat son um who decides to become a soldier like he very graciously says I'm going to admit, I have no fucking clue what I'm getting into, but I'm very glad to learn, like, I've just started to grasp how little I don't know, so I'm looking forward to to, to fixing that. Yeah. Uh, it's a very fun speech, just for, like, introducing the character and his, and his way of looking at it, because there, we'll get into this, but there's definitely sort of this fun curiosity to share it in as we get introduced to him over the course of the season. And especially with his the posting that he's been on, because he's been out on the rim for <laughs> years. Yeah. That's really interesting in terms of how he's introduced and in like why he's brought on to be the commander of the station. Yeah, I think that's really interesting that like what has he been doing? He's been on an exploratory vessel. He hasn't been on some military warship. I mean, the Agamemnon's a warship, but he hasn't been on some, like, capital ship floating near Earth, engaged in the politics of Earth. He's been out in the middle of fuck nowhere. Yeah. But he gets this posting entirely based on his reputation. It's kind of a a knucklehead move because clearly the people – the president took one look and goes, that's the guy that blew up the Black Star. I want him. 
And the generals, like, Haig is going like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, cool. I mean, oh, are you sure? Like, clearly this is, uh, you know. Uh, and... It's it's almost the same it's almost the same fake out that we get with the the first scene versus what we see in the rest of the episode. Yeah. Um that he has this reputation for being this this tough guy who, you know, tough guy tactician who took out a warship when really it was a big nerd move, like Right. Yeah. And and that like he's been yeah, the real reason that he is a good choice for the station is that he's been out on the rim, like making fucking first contact yeah. over and over. Yeah. And I think thinking about this episode, I think I have a suspicion that JMS sat down to write this episode and was like, fuck it. I'm just gonna yank the bandage off. Like there's no good way to do this. I lost my lead in a really inopportune place. I didn't have time to like gracefully exit him. Yeah. So I'm just going to say, fuck it, new captain, and just run with it. And yeah. not try and like explain it or be very graceful about it. Just do it and- And lean into the chaos. Yeah. Lean into the chaos and we'll we'll try and explain it a little bit later. We'll try and clean up the mess as we go along. But like, it definitely feels like an episode where he's just like, I can't do this- clean so i'm gonna do it fun <laughs> and and i think he managed to, to lean into the chaos in a way that really worked quite well um because we've got you know sinclair being posted to minbar which all of us who know anything about sinclair are like oh jeez. but then at the same time like a new president taking you know the 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 vice president taking the presidency and immediately reassigning the B5 commander is so suspicious and yeah. i think that that i think that that's one of the things that really adds to the uh clark is suspicious subplot very early on yeah um we will get into uh, we will get into why uh, in our coverage of next episode, yeah. we, I will talk about specific reasons why. The the start of this episode, or like near the start of it, where Ivanova is reeling off everything that is going on at the station at that exact moment. Surrounded by chaos. Just feels like the most 2020 thing ever. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> where it's like, Ambassador Jakar has disappeared. The Chief Garibaldi's in a coma. Dylan is in a is in a cocoon, and Arxio just got reassigned to Midbar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and the president was just assassinated. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I also there's some really good Ivanova moments in this episode. Um, starting off a season that's really strong for Ivanova. Yeah, I love the chemistry that she has with Sheridan. Like, it's not a romantic chemistry, but they have this history of working together, and she she opens up to him in a way that she doesn't with Sinclair. Yeah, very much so. Like, in this episode, you know, He's they have- He's much more of a mentor for her. Yeah, they have they have the heart-to-heart, -heart, you know, she, she says, you know, that with all of this going on, she's, she's tried to do right by the crew, but has been emotionally struggling herself. Um, and it's just a very good human moment for Ivanva. Yeah, I really like that part. Something I don't like about this episode is Kalane. With his Wolverine claws. Oh my god, I, and his, I need and to his, talk about this. Okay, Kalane, please tell me he's movie. show up again. Kalane looks like a guy who bought those Wolverine claws at the <laughs> mall. Because they, they look like mall ninja shit. And it looks, it but looks. But Wolverine is also a bald ninja. <laughs> yeah, it looks like he was at the mall buying anime waifu figurines and saw them in the window and was like, "Fuck yeah, I'll be so cool with those." And he th and he he buys those, and the first time he busts them out, it only works because nobody knows what to do with a guy with a neck beard and Wolverine claws. <laughs> I would also like to dunk on him for the fact that his hidden poison tooth looks like a gusher. And I'm like 99% sure that that is the prop that they, that is how they made the prop. 
uh, for his poison tooth was they it just took a gusher and painted it white on the outside. It looked yummy. Um, it also it also looks like those you know the 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 gum that was trendy for a while, where it's like the gum with the like <laughs> the goo inside. I just want to imagine that this is not something that the Trigati picked up out in the rim. That this is an honorable <laughs> historic Midbari weapon, which is the Wolverine claws. <laughs> it never comes back. Damn it! This Damn is the it. only I guy that ever has Wolverine claws. Fuck you, JMS. Fuck you, Babylon 5 prop department. <laughs> you have ruined this show. Like I said, I really I really like to believe that Kalein is on like Traps Nazor 7, which is a galactic <laughs> strip mall. And he's buying he's buying his Evangelion uh minifigures because Evangelion is still putting out merchandise in the 24th century. Well, you and have to get to it's it's for the new it's for the new OVA because they'll just keep putting them out. Yeah. Yeah, the the re 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 remake of End of Evangelion. And so he's buying the latest Oscar figure and he sees these Wolverine claws in the window and he's like, "Yeah, I was going to get a katana, but that's way cooler. Wolverine claws. Got to get me some of that. I hate this. I love this, but I hate it. That's what you say about most of the things I come up with. Um, You also have a note here that just says, souls? Souls? Yeah, just, so, I'm looking forward to this like learning more about how the fuck this is all going to get explained. Mm-hmm. But it's just like, okay, there is obviously, there is a way you can turn from Minbari, as we will be talking about in our next episode, to some sort of hybrid. How did the fuck did that link happen so that you could do that? Slash, where, how did the Minbard Earth Souls pipeline get going here? So I think I think at this point we might need to have Justin take off their headphones for just a second. Activate gold channel one. Okay. So the the crystal house of cards. Yeah. I think that it's just one of those like cyclical mythological artifact things. I don't I don't think that canonically anybody ever made it because Valen brings it to the past and yeah. then it's the same one that Delenn uses that then Valen use, brings to the past. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm I'm sure if we look in the wiki or something, there will be a uh, reference to like, oh, it was created by here. Let's see. The Vorlons. Oh, no. It originated from the Great Machine on Epsilon 3. Oh, wild. Yeah. And it was brought and it was from there. It was brought into the past and it was used by Sinclair, and then who then gave it to Delenn, who then used it in the past, in in the, the future. Interesting. So it's not the same one that Delenn uses that then goes back to the past, or is it? Or is it? Or is it Jude? Time travel makes my head hurt. Anyway, Justin's anyway. probably safe now. I'm glad my questions get answered when I can't hear them. <laughs> this that was unrelated. Lanier is a good boy. Lanier is a good boy, dutifully tending the gross, weird, leaky cocoon thing. This episode just has a wild amount of exposition, though. Like that, we just get info dump after info dump with the with the mm-hmm. like Mimbari human souls thing, etc. And it's like, okay, well, Sinclair's gone. We got to wrap up all those threads real fast. Yeah. Like that, probably some of those would have been, say, revealed over the first half of season two. I'm guessing. Didn't we know all of that already? No. It just had never been like laid out clearly. No, we all we knew was that Sinclair. We knew that Sinclair had been taken by the Great Council, but we didn't know yeah. anything about the souls. Hmm. Yeah. I love that Babylon Five is willing to do that. That's one of the things I really like about the world building in Babylon Five. I think I've called this out before that Babylon 5 is willing to say it's a science fiction show, but also their souls. And it's a, I think it's a very Minbari thing that the show does. It's just like, it's a big, weird universe, man. Maybe there's souls in it. Like, fucking deal with it. Yeah. I, I think it would be very interesting 
at some point. I don't know how this would get adapted or anything, but like seeing what the plan would have been for Babylon 5 if Sinclair hadn't left. Mm-hmm. Like that is something that I'm like, I'm very interested in like alternate ways fiction could have developed. Um, yeah, for sure. The, the, the first drafts of Star Wars are very interesting to me. Yeah. Theoretical things that like authors do, but get changed late or something like I, it would have been interesting to see how, if Michael O'Hare doesn't leave the show and they're just allowed to progress along, how that changes the show and how that would have developed. But I, Jude, I think you actually tracked down some of that, right? Yeah, I did. Which may or may not be accurate. Funnily enough, reading reading through at least what Jude had tracked down, it's so different. And the the show took just such a dramatically different turn even even in terms of the basic world building with the change in commanders and the the subsequent mm. effects that some some fundamental some really really fundamental stuff would be drastically different there was a lot of bananas changes i do have two notes for hey i know that face okay oh yeah so robin sachs who plays helrod is that his name henrod Henrude, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. One of them in Bari. He has the voice of Zaid Masani in Mass Effect. Huh. Yep. And he also played a general Valen in an episode of Voyager. Wild. Um, and then we've got we've got another one who's a big a big fucking deal. General Haig, who is played by Robert Foxworth. He would later, uh, this is, pro- I think this is maybe one or two years down the road, would play uh, Admiral Layden in a very good two-parter in Deep Space Nine, which is the, the Homefront and, Par- I, I think it's Homefront and Paradise Lost, which is yeah. about a militaristic takeover of, uh, or an attempted military coup of the Federation. Those are, those are some really good episodes from DS9. Yeah. Uh, and I find that symmetry to be uh, rather amusing. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. It would just be, it, it literally would be next year that those episodes come out. Uh, so that's, that's sort of great. Yeah. Those are our two random sci fi 90s bit actors. Well, let's get to the back half of this, which is our second episode that we are coming tonight, which is Revelations. Uh, all right. So, episode. 2-2, two, two, Season 2, Episode 2, Revelations, written by JMS and directed by Jim Johnston. Like our last couple of episodes, there's not really an A or B plot here, just plot. You might call Sheridan's sister visiting a B plot, but it's woven into things pretty tightly, so I'm just going to kind of run with it. Our episode opens on Londo in a sudden fit of bureaucratic passion, loudly remonstrating Lanier and Natoth, who are sitting in on the council for their ambassadors. He even goes so far as to raise a motion that they be censured and their government's order to assign new ambassadors. I can't fathom why he thought either Sheridan or Kosh would second that motion, but he is ranting and raving about it. Uh, Sheridan dismisses the meeting with a weariness that says this is not the bullshit he gave up exploring deep space for. And Londo corners Natoth to demand she answer him. Where is Jakar? The ambassador can handle himself, she assures him. We cut to Jakar and some allies fleeing a planet being chased by what looks like deformed koosh balls, but whose still excellent sound effects tell us they are shadow ships of some kind. Jakar's wingmen give their lives to save him so he can make it to the gate. Next, we are back with Franklin and Sheridan. The captain is enjoying a drink in the smooth jazz of the officer's lounge while waiting for his sister's ship to arrive when the good doctor shows up to talk to him about Garibaldi. Simply put, he's not doing great. Uh, He's concerned that Garibaldi isn't going to make it. Unfortunately for us, he has an idea. The alien life force machine he got back in Quality of Mercy, a.k.a. Franklin does a douchebag. He wants the captain's permission to use it, even though it's against the regs. Sheridan approves, joking, maybe, that uh, his chief of staff dying as soon as he arrives would make him look bad. I think we all know that no one in Earth Force would blame him for letting Garibaldi die, but whatever. He gives Franklin permission and then goes to get his sister uh, from Arrivals. We meet his sister, Lizzie, who calls him Johnny. No, 
It's the only comment I have on that. Uh, who then proceeds to complain about the flight and call him fat. That's siblings for you. They head to dinner where Sheridan is talking enthusiastically about his new posting. And then his sister is a huge buzzkill and is like, hey, that's great. Let's talk about your dead wife, which honestly seems like a really shitty move. They then have an argument about how Sheridan has been handling his wife's death uh, two years ago. And in the end, he begs off the conversation and asks if they can table it. She agrees, and they continue on with dinner. Meanwhile, in the Zen Garden, Londo has a meeting with Morden, where he frightfully confronts the skis ball about the, the attack on Quadrant 37. Uh, he asks, what if I want another demonstration? And Morden is all, pick a target. And Londo is like, what, are you going to wipe out the Narn homeworld for me? And Morden's like, one thing at a time. And you're like, oh, that's pretty funny. And then, Everybody who's ever watched the show before looks over at you like, shut up. <laughs> now, we already talked about the uh, good quote about uh, how pivotal of a scene this is for Londo, about how he's making decisions here. Um, but this is a really good scene. Uh, I like it. Anyway, at the end of the conversation, he asks Londo lo to let him know if he hears about anything unusual going on on the rim. Uh, to which Londo agrees. We get a couple of quick scenes next of Lanier tending the lens cocoon as it begins to crack open. Sheridan and Franklin argue over who gets to be hooked up to the healing machine for Garibaldi. They eventually decide to take turns. Sheridan feels like as the captain, it is his responsibility to take a shot at it. Uh, whereas Franklin is a pompous butt bag and thinks that he should be able to go first, even though it makes no earthly sense why. Um, but they agree to, to tag team it. And finally, we get Jakar's return. This scene is great. Natoth enters his quarters to find him sitting on his silly rock bed, reading the book of Jaquan and being super extra. He says that when he, he retells his bit uh, from the end of season one, Chrysalis, where when he heard about the attack on Quadrant 37, he knew it was a major power and not one they knew, either a new power or a very old one. He tells her of writings in the Book of Jaquan about a war long ago and an enemy that nearly overwhelmed the stars. They were driven back to a planet on the rim. He searched for and found this planet. He says it is gathering its forces and the others must be warned. After a thousand years, the darkness has come again. Next comes the part none of us are looking forward to. Garibaldi wakes up. Boo. Franklin calls everyone in. Jack, who has been snooping on the security feeds, slips in as well and listens in the background as Garibaldi sorts out what has happened and what is going on. Hand on his gun. But Garibaldi has no memory of who shot him. He is surprised and upset at the departure of Sinclair, and doesn't know who Sheridan is, and is not at all amused by Sheridan's attempt to be congenial and friendly. We get a very brief but very good scene with Londo and Jakar next, where Jakar says that despite the beef between their races, I love this scene where Jakar is saying, uh, the, the beef between our, our races can only be served with blood, except that is fact. It's very good. Um, there may come a day when he needs Londo's help in the name of the survival of the, all the races on the station. Finally, it's hatching time. Lanier returns from somewhere. It's not clear where he goes in his free time. The can, I guess. I don't know. Did Mimbari poop? Is this a subject <laughs> we've had in the past? I don't know. To you see, we do not sweat as your people do. Yeah, we, we right? a We exude a membrane while we sleep. He comes back to find the cocoon busted open and some sort of rock golem wearing a Frankly, unminbari-ish robe that looks like sackcloth, uh, real rough business, uh, huddled in a corner groaning for help. He calls Franklin, lacking other options, I suppose, who is sworn to secrecy on arrival, uh, who then goes to examine Delenn. Uh, she extends a hand from the robe, revealing a rocky skin, which he then proceeds to break. Good bedside manner, dumbass. I didn't uh, want to peel. No, he, he like grips her arm hard enough to like break the rock surface and then like peels a chunk off to reveal skin beneath. Real medical professional here. 
and then he asks, is it supposed to do that? Like, <laughs> this man is supposedly a professional, like, xenobiologist or something. And he's like, is it supposed to do that? And she's like, the fuck if I know, man. Do I look, would I have called you if I knew what the hell ass was going on? Uh, he lifts her hood and sees yeah, her you face. Yeah, right. Thank you for coming to our We Hate Stephen Franklin podcast. Right. I try not to rag on this that much, but God, he doesn't make it easy. No. And of course, he's friends with Garibaldi, too. Yeah. Um, He lifts her hood and sees her face, which is more rock golem-esque, and reacts like there's something else going on in there besides her face. He's very not professional, again, has a real good flinch, again, with the bedside manner. Back to Sheridan and his sister, who I'm sure has more complaints and problems she needs to air. He finally reopens the wife conversation and admits he feels guilty for her death. She took the surveying job that led to her death two years ago because he skipped their anniversary, he says. He was too busy working. He never said, I love you at the end of their call, and he's been carrying around this guilt the whole time. Sometime after that, it's not clear how long has passed, uh, the council has finally been called, and Jakar is giving them the same speech he gave Natoth. Sheridan is skeptical, Londo is Londo, but Jakar is prepared to prove it to them, because he's fucking awesome. He's convinced the Kari to send a ship to the planet. As soon as he says, the rim, though... Fucking Londo gets a look in his eye that should be subtitled, I'm about to fuck up Jakar's day. Like a little good dog that he is, he runs right to Morden and tells him about Jakar's plans. Garibaldi, meanwhile, is about to fuck up someone else's plans. He gets Talia to come and scan his mind. She's very clear that whatever he finds isn't admissible. But he's like, I don't give a fuck. I just want to know who shot me. Jesus, just read my mind. She does. And he sees Jack in the reflection of a surface in the corner of his eye. His security team lures Jack out of his office by telling him that Ambassador Delenn has hatched and has butterfly wings, which feels like it should have been an obvious <laughs> fake out, but okay. Nobody uh, could have known. <laughs> he comes out of his office and Garibaldi's entire security team goes a cab on him and begin to beat the shit out of him uh, until Sheridan jogs up and is like, whoa now, that's not how we roll. And Lou is like, why don't you take a walk around the block, man, and uh, come on back when we're done with him. And Sheridan's like, nah, that that's not what we're doing here. Which props to Sheridan. Yeah, they throw him into the brig. Well, let's not give him too many props just yet. He hasn't had his own moment. Garibaldi, because he's a tough dude, climbs out of bed despite being near crippled uh, to yell at Jack and slam his cane on the desk because uh, testosterone, getting basically nothing out of him. Like literally nothing happens in this scene. He yells a lot and Jack does nothing and nothing happens here except for at the very end, Jack gives him the little hat tip gesture that Bester used. Uh, which will leave best, uh, which will leave Garibaldi paranoid for essentially the entire rest of the TV show. <laughs> Later, as Sheridan is doodling on his light bright, the president calls and, in a totally not at all distrustful way, tells him to send Jack and every single piece of evidence on the next shuttle to Earth. Good job, son, getting all that evidence for me. Now just pack it all up and send it on to me, one of the suspects in your investigation. No big deal. Totally legit. Uh, Sheridan does a frowny face, but apparently they're going to do it. I swear we're getting there, guys. I swear. <laughs> it's a big episode. Out on the rim, the Narn ship is about to arrive at Zaha Doom. They exit the jump gate and then are immediately lasered by a shadow ship. Whoopsie doodle. Natoth tells Jakar their ship was destroyed and blames it on an accident uh, during exit from hyperspace. Jakar says it must have been attacked in the brief period while the ship is out of communication due to the jump engine sucking power from the rest of the ship. That would only work, he says, though, if someone knew they were coming. Londo looks guilty, Jakar looked angry and sad, and Sheridan, who I guess isn't entirely up on his blood feuds, looks clueless. Jakar is about to sulk off and be extra about how everything is fucked when Lanier arrives to announce Delenn's wish to address the council. She arrives hooded in a very fancy-looking white silk robe. 
She then proceeds to remove the hood and reveal her new form, a hybrid. She is half human. She's got the bone ridge, but otherwise she looks like a human. She's got hair and everything. Everyone looks dumbstruck, but Sheridan looks like a teenage boy that's just discovered hormones, uh, stuck <laughs> like a deer in the headlights. They, yeah, it's a look, man. She says that Sinclair has been allowed to live on their world as an ambassador, and she has undergone her change with the blessings of her government, which is a fucking lie, to become a bridge between their peoples to ensure that there never is another war between them. Uh, we cut without any kind of transition to Ch Sheridan telling the story to his sister, explaining how dumbstruck he was. She's like, well, buckle up, buddy, because the day's not over yet, and gives him a video of his dead wife. She leaves and is like, if you have any questions, you know, come and talk to me. Uh, it turns out to be a message that his wife sent to his sister, telling her, basically laughing at him for how... Uh, upset he looked at having to cancel their anniversary plans when she was about to cancel on him. She's like, ha ha, he's so silly. I love him so much. And Sheridan watches the message and doesn't seem at all offended that his sister would hold this message back for the last two years. And that's basically the end of that. The episode closes with Jakar and Natoth in the garden. He says, things have changed, but they will survive because they are Narn and that's what they do. He then reads her some lines from a poem called The Second Coming by Yeats. Uh, things fall, fall apart. apart. The center, the cannot, center hold. cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. And what rough beast. Its hour come round at last. Slouches toward Bethlehem to be born uh and that's the end boy howdy is that an episode oh yeah uh yeah that is that is a hell of an episode it's funny because not much happens no no not much happens it's and like this is this is what i was saying with like the the internal versus external happenings that yeah. So many of the episodes are externally focused, and here we have one that I mean the the plot clicks along pretty well, but yeah. it's in almost entirely internally focused. Yeah, it's like two council meetings, a doctor's visit, and Garibaldi being a butthole. Like it's not like there's a lot of action in the movie or in the episode. I mean, I guess some spaceships get blown up that counts as action but like it's almost entirely like people chatting and stuff but it it there's a lot going on here yeah but it's it's precisely that those scenes with people chatting that give us character development yeah yeah a couple of interesting notes uh about this episode the observant among you may note that natoth's actress is not the same person in this episode, as in prior ones. I, I really liked season one, Natoth. Her yeah. season two actress will be our focus of, hey, I know that face. Cool. Uh, what, what ended up happening is that the original Natoth signed the five-year contract, but couldn't tolerate the prosthetics, and so quit. Their casting director called in a favor with an actress named Caitlin Brown, who could and did a great job in the role but also at the same time was starting to take off in romantic lead films as as jms puts it in lurkers and uh didn't want to continue doing babylon 5 because it took a lot of time and she was under the prosthetics the whole time so nobody could see that it was her and she wasn't getting FaceTime, and it wasn't advancing her career she didn't feel like uh. so she left after season one and so in season two, they had to get a new actress, and it's a very different energy. Yeah, it's that she it's, brings um, less aggressive. Yeah, but also less like chipper, mm -hmm. just like lower mm -hmm. energy overall. I think. Yeah. Other fun notes. Uh, according to JMS, he did not intentionally make Zaha Doom sound like Kaza Doom. <laughs> it was entirely accidental. Oh, buddy! At the time. Oh, buddy. This I, is what he claims. I feel like this speaks to how much of 
a talking nerd he is that it's like well hmm uh scary place (laughs) yeah the last note i wanted to drop in here before we sort of dive into the any analysis is um talking about delenn's transformation we mentioned it in the last episode uh the original plan for delenn was for the character to be a male minbari that uh, after chrysalis comes out of it as a human female that is why in the original unaired pilot the gathering mira ferlin's costume is much more masculine looking uh with a sort of a more angular chin and a much much more masculine jawline but they didn't jms really didn't like the effect they used to transform mira ferlin's voice to a more masculine one and the whole thing just didn't work for jms so they scrapped it and had in instead went to uh, having it be female the whole way through. He also refuted the uh, rumor that the transformation only happened because Mira Furlan didn't like wearing the prosthetics. Apparently, the post-transformation prosthetic with the like the bone piece around the hair took longer to put on than the Minbari prosthetic. Interesting. I have to say that like bone headband is such a weird piece of costuming. Like, I I like the way that it works, but whoever was doing the costuming for Delenn, like, overall had no fucking idea what to do with her hair because so often in so many scenes, her hair is just, like, down and then the bone goes over it. And it's like, Mm, so in, in this episode, they actually have it where the hair that comes out of the top of her head like stays on the top of her head and kind of falls over the bone ridge, which is the piece of costuming that would make sense. He addresses that. Oh my God. He he does? Yeah. Let's Cause, see. Because that bothers me every time. Why does Delenn's hair go under the bone ridge? Uh, when Delenn's structure changed, the epidermal layer on the head grew thinner. There is now a gap between the skin and the bone which has grown out. Hair can be draped through it or laid over it. See, I, I like it so much better when it's like the hair that's on top stays on top. That always looks so much better and makes way yeah. more sense rather than just yeah. being like... And can you imagine trying to thread like an entire top of head's th- worth of hair through like a little gap? Like, that would fucking suck. Yeah. Uh, that is all I have for weird tidbits about this episode. We can now proceed to dunk on Franklin. I, I do want to say that, like, you, you posted a... Is that is that like a production photo, photo or is that how Delenn actually looks in The Gathering? That's how she that, actually looks in The Gathering. Ooh. Not a fan of what they're doing with the prosthetics on that jawline there. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, a little rough. I'm going to say unfortunate, because I think if that had gone through, that probably wouldn't look great looking back. Like with the the idea of the trans storyline there, mm-hmm. just with that look, uh, who knows what it would have looked like afterwards. But it's just like that. That's uh, that's unfortunate. With that look. Yeah, it's it's a rough one. It's not great. There there's there are many things from the gathering that are unfortunate. This is one of them. Yeah. Uh, also, this doesn't have the like fucking elf shoes. Um, I do like uh, in this episode, like how I don't know how long it's been specifically since the last episode, but I mean, we're given the idea that some time has passed at least, and like Sheridan is like really settled down, and he's he's got the energy of somebody who's like really found themselves in a new job. Mm-hmm. Like it's not like it's not like Sheridan's like oh I'm gonna pay five hundred extra bucks a week. It's like no I love what I'm doing here. That's why his sister's bullshit pisses me off. Yeah, like yeah, this is. is a guy who clearly is thriving in this new gig. Like aside from the fact that he's psyched about the gardens and having real food to eat, he's obviously like into what he's doing. And she's like, are you happy? Or are you just ignoring your wife's death? And he's yeah. like, I like the gardens. Yeah, it's a dick move. This is some, like, okay, this is yeah. like somebody who, like, who, I mean, obviously, like, you know, still dealing with trauma and stuff because he 
is still dealing with that. And, like, people grieve in their own ways and they deal with shit in their own ways. But, like, he got a new job where he had to move to a new city. And he's really enjoying himself. And you're going to be a big downer about this. I honestly thought for, like, the first time I watched this episode that she was, like, sent by Morden just to (laughs) fuck with Sheridan. Like, that was my thought for the first 40 minutes of this episode. Wild. For sure. Like, I could, that was the only way I could explain it. <laughs> and yeah, but she she's not a very likable character because it's like, she doesn't seem happy for him at all. No, no, she doesn't. At the same time, I feel like his, I feel like JMS overall writes grief well, I think, um, based off of Ivanova in TKO uh, and thereabouts. And and here, you know, this is it's another example of a character who the the grieving Sheridan's grieving feels very real. Yeah. I really like the scene where they're at dinner. I I really don't like his sister. The scene at dinner where he's like he's into it, like he's talking about his job and stuff, and as soon as she mentions his wife, it's like somebody smashes a paper bag. Mm-hmm. He just crumples and like his whole his body language changes. He like leans forward and he's like pulling. He's like his hand is like up. He's like pulling on his ear and like he gets all these anxious body movements when he starts talking about his wife. And it's very well acted. Yeah, to sort of show like all of like all of a sudden he has all of this like nervous, anxious energy coming out. And I don't know, it works. If I'm recalling correctly, I think that they have him cry at multiple points. He's pretty close to it, yeah. Um, which is I don't think there's I don't think it actually ever reaches that point, but it's very close. Um, he's definitely he's definitely at very least close to tears, which is I think, you know, fairly unusual for a dude character in the nineties. In the first two episodes, we definitely like they're both pretty Sheridan centric, and I think we get to see that like I think that they had a, maybe a little bit more confidence in Boxlitner and what his range is because, like, they, they give him a lot to work with in these first two episodes, and uh, he, he knocks it out of the park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it means that he, he warms the role a lot faster than O'Hare yeah. did. Other things I noticed when I was writing this up, Jakar talks about the fact that his, about the Narn knowing about the shadow war a thousand years ago, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. That made me really curious. Like, and he doesn't talk about it just as though they were like a planet that the shadows visited. Apparently the book of Jaquan has like sufficient information recorded in it that he's able to like track down Zaha doom. Yeah. Which begs the question, like were the, were the Narn a spacefaring race a thousand years ago that got like knocked back to the Stone Age by that war, or were the Narns like being carried around on sto- on alien ships like Cro-Magnons in a ancient alien special on the History Channel? Like, what what is going on with the Narns here? Because it seems weird that they that the Book of Jaquan has this extremely specific and accurate information a thousand years old. Yeah, for sure. I think it's also maybe plausible that there's some sort of like maybe telepathy slash prophecy slash something else aspect. I mean, that I wouldn't put that out of the realm of possibility. Yeah. But yeah, the, the book of Jaquan also will see that that has other things in it as well. Yeah. Like that, that one monster that, Mm-hmm. Like every time I watch that episode, it scares the shit out of me. Yeah, that's another that that's another Franklin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is. Oh, I hate that episode so much. It has it has Reg Barkley in it too. Oh, oh yeah, 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 I remember that one. Oh, I forgot I forgot what season that was in. So you've seen that, Justin? Yeah, I remember. I remember seeing Dwight Schultz. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I remember all things that I see Dwight Schultz in. So something that I like in this episode that um, is just a nice touch because we get because we get on the grand scale of 
we throw whatever medical technology is hilarious to the plot. We get both we get both ends of that spectrum today. We get Franklin pulling out this like weird like glow stick scanny thing, just like waving it at Delenn, and it does nothing, apparently. Like he doesn't even comment on the readings for it, which are hilarious. He never does. No, he um which makes me think that he's a quack, but that's 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 a whole other thing. But uh, we also see Garibaldi walking around, like we we see Garibaldi with a cane, which is, I would say, not something that you typically like. That that it's it's an interesting, mm-hmm. nice little touch, just because I I don't think most television shows do not go out of their way to portray that. You just like to see Garibaldi suffer. I mean, that is, but I also like as. Somebody who uh, does not have great knees, and uh, I, you know, and it's like I like seeing like mm. I like seeing visible signs of like injury or fatigue. It's yeah. I like seeing I like seeing all characters suffer. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, we we and we we also on the medical tech side, we also have Franklin with the I will use my light stick beep beep. And then that tells me nothing. So time to poke. Poke. Fucking Franklin. That whole scene made me so angry. I was just like, what are, are you a doctor or a fucking goblin? What are you doing? She might, honest to God, Lanier would have done just as well to have hired a fucking basset hound to investigate (laughs) that situation. (laughs) I just want to see the basset him, like, hound would have had a little bit and just lick it. Yeah, the basset hound would have had better bedside manner too. It would have been more more considerate of her feelings in that moment. Instead, Franklin's just like, "Ooh, poke! Oh, what the fuck are you?" The dog would have at least been like, "Oh, you look sad," you know. <laughs> I mean, some dogs are like that. My dog would have been like, "Get off the couch! You're in my spot." But. <laughs> You know, in theory. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening to our podcast. Fuck you, Franklin. Uh, this has We're been another so episode. Bad about this. <laughs> we hate him so much, and he doesn't get better. I can't wait for. I mean, is it a spoiler to talk about the walkabout thing? I don't care. I'm- Fuck Franklin. Um, at one point, there is an episode in the future where Franklin will be like, I'm too cool. I'm going to go on walkabout. Which to find his version, myself. To find myself, which will involve him just like walking around Babylon 5. He doesn't even leave Babylon 5. He just like walks around down below with a little like hipster backpack. And I hate it. I hate it. I hate him. I look forward to us covering this in the future. Uh, is there uh, anything else that we want to talk about this episode? No, I think we've dunked on Franklin as much as possible. Okay, so um, for our closing bit of Hey, I Know That Face, your guide to 90s bit sci-fi actors, um, today we have Natoth's new actor, Mary Kay Adams. Uh, Mary Kay Adams was on Guiding Light for a while, but that's not why we're here. We're here. Because of specifically two episodes she did for Star Trek D Space Tide, where she played the wonderful, astounding Grilka, um, <gasps> who is in the episodes House of Cork and Looking for Parmok in All the Wrong Places. Two of my the, favorite Deep Space Nine episodes. Yeah, she is a delight of a human being. <laughs> I have no idea. I didn't watch enough DS9. I have no oh, idea what is, these episodes are. This, those, are those are the ones where Quark fucks a Klingon. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That was not the sentence I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it, it is honestly just like, yeah, Quark gets married to a Klingon. She has extreme top energy. <laughs> and honestly, real great. Love her. Um, so yeah, I, she's great. I love her. This is okay. So do we need to do a Deep Space Nine rewatch pod where Jude is the one who hasn't seen it before? Next up, once we finish B5. There we go. So uh, next time we are going to have, uh, we're going to be covering 
we'll see how this shakes out. But theoretically, we are going to be covering episodes three and four of season two. A Geometry of Shadows and a Distant Star. Oh, wizard snap. Shit. Wizard shit. Wizard shit. Wizard shit. <laughs> oh, man. Until next time, y'all. Be seeing ya. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.